Three of them are tranquilizing factors. Calm, concentration, and equanimity. Three are arousing factors. Investigation, courageous effort, and rapture. When the tranquilizing factors and the arousing factors come into balance, that is the maturity in our practice. That's the the ripening of our practice. And the way they come into balance is through mindfulness. Mindfulness has the power both to attract all of the elements, all of these factors, and to balance them. So it's helpful to consider as you go through the day is to put what you're doing, to put the effort and the energy that you're making, to put it into this context of what it is that's being developed. In every moment of attention, what is being developed in the mind at that time, what's being strengthened, are these seven factors of enlightenment, these seven factors of realization. So we practice mindfulness, there's investigation, there's energy, there's interest, there's calm, there's concentration, there's equanimity. We develop them, we ripen them, we bring them to maturity, and out of that comes the highest goal. If you have some questions, I think perhaps you can come up since the talk was a little long. Otherwise, please continue with your walking. Sometimes also, just one last mm, suggestion, going back to that, uh, the Satipatthana discourse, one encouraging thing to do, uh, it's encouraging in the sense of giving a context to the practice, as you're sitting, particularly in the sitting, but perhaps in the walking too, sometimes it can be helpful just to kind of do a checklist on these factors of enlightenment. Because it's part of mindfulness of the Dharma. And that is to become mindful of whether the factors are present or not present whether the mindfulness is there or not there, whether investigation is there or not there, or energy, rapture, calm, concentration, equanimity. It just gives you a sense, it gives you kind of a, a report right, on what's happening in the mind at that time with reference to these, to these factors of realization. Okay, thank you. This is the closing part of the Satipatthana discourse. These, as far as we know, are the words of the Buddha. Were anyone to develop these four foundations of mindfulness for seven years, one of two fruits or results could be expected. Either final knowledge, full enlightenment here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, the state of non-return, which is the third stage of enlightenment. 
let alone seven years, were anyone to develop these four foundations of mindfulness for six years, let alone six years, for five years, let alone for five years, for four years, let alone four years, for three years, let alone for three years, for two years, let alone two years, for one year, let alone one year, for seven months, for six months, for five months, for four months, for three months, let alone for three months, for two months, let alone for two months, for one month, let alone for one month, for half a month, let alone half a month, were anyone to develop these four foundations of mindfulness for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected, either final knowledge here and now, or if there should be a trace of clinging left, non-return. So it was said in reference to this, it was said, this path, again this is the Buddha speaking, namely the four foundations of mindfulness, is a path that goes in one way only, to the purification of beings, to the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, to the disappearance of pain and grief, to the realization of Nibbana. Seven days. <laughs>
certain point in our practice, there is a maturity of understanding which arises, which which allows us to understand that there's a purpose and a goal to the meditation. There's a reason why we do this. And at the same time that we can appreciate the goal or the purpose of practice, we balance that with the understanding that the way to the goal the way to the end is through a grounding ourselves in a true relationship to the present moment. So it's this maturity of understanding which allows us to hold both of these aspects in mind. Being grounded in the moment with a sense of purpose. The purpose of practice the goal of practice is to free the mind from defilement, to purify the mind, to purify it of greed, to purify it of hatred or aversion, to purify it of delusion or ignorance. This purification happens both gradually that is, in every moment of mindfulness, in that moment of awareness, the mind is being purified. And it's also purified through the realization of the unconditioned, of Nibbana, the unborn. Because it's that realization which has the power to uproot the defilements from the stream of consciousness so they can no longer arise again. In this sense, the path of meditation is the path of purification. We're purifying our minds. The way we do this has been expressed in the Buddhist teachings in a very clear model when he described the seven factors of enlightenment. That is, he laid out or described seven factors of mind, seven qualities of mind, which when they are brought to maturity, when they are brought to fullness and to balance with one another, purify the mind in themselves and also create the conditions for the realization of the unconditioned. This evening I would like to speak about these seven factors of enlightenment, the seven limbs of enlightenment. Because it's a way of understanding actually what we're doing here. A way of understanding what we're developing in our practice. The first of these factors of enlightenment, not surprisingly, is mindfulness. 
mindfulness, mindfulness, fullness of mind. That capacity or that ability of the mind to notice very carefully and accurately and precisely what is happening in that moment's experience. So it has a deep and penetrating power of noticing. It's the opposite of forgetfulness, of the mind losing sight of what the object is. Mindfulness has a tremendous power in cutting through confusion in the mind. Because confusion arises when we are not clear about what's going on. When our experience is a jumble of thoughts or feelings or emotions or sensations or ideas or concepts. And when we're not clear, when we don't have a clear view of actually what's happening in that moment, we get lost in that cloud of confusion or ignorance. And mindfulness has the power to cut or to slice right through that confusion. To settle into the simplicity of the moment. And as you have seen repeatedly, trillions and trillions of times already, there are only six things which ever happen. In all of our experience, there are only six things, six objects, sight and sound and smell and taste and sensation and mind objects. So mindfulness has the power to cut through whatever confusion or delusion is arising and to touch, to be aware of the simplicity of the moment's experience. As we understand in a deeper way the quality or characteristics of mindfulness, we see that it is not limited to a particular form. That is not limited to when we sit or when we walk or when we do certain activities. Mindfulness is applicable, is appropriate, is necessary actually from the moment of waking up until the moment of going to sleep. But everything becomes a sitting, so to speak. We should not undervalue or underestimate or put into a hierarchy different aspects of our experience as one being more important than another. Because that weakens or undermines the development of this factor of enlightenment, of mindfulness. Can we be equally attentive, equally alert, equally aware in every moment? Most traditions have stories that are particularly representative of that tradition. And there are lots of 
Zen stories and Tibetan stories and Mullah Nasruddin stories. There's a Vipassana story. There's one particular Vipassana story which you perhaps have heard, but I will tell you it again. And this is the story of Ananda, who was the attendant to the Buddha. Ananda was a very lovable person. He was among the most lovable of the monks, of the followers of the Buddha. Everybody loved Ananda. And quite quickly he reached to the first stage of enlightenment, to stream entry. But because he was the attendant to the Buddha, he was very busy with a lot of things, and so he could not proceed further in his realization. And after some time, the Buddha died. Before he died, he told Ananda, you have all the paramis, you have all the prerequisites for full enlightenment. So strive on with diligence. Ananda strove with diligence, but it wasn't happening. Some years after the Buddha's death, I forget exactly how many, they called a council of monks together to recite the teachings, to rehearse, the, because they were passed on orally, as a way of preserving the teachings of the Buddha. And there were 499 monks who were all fully enlightened with full psychic power, right, who had the whole development and range of mind. And there was Ananda. They wanted Ananda there because he had been present at every discourse the Buddha gave. And he had also the particular quality of mind of, of perfect recall. So he was a valuable person to have at this council meeting. But it was a little considered a little shameful that there should be 499 arhans and Ananda, you know, a poor Sotapanna, stream enterer. <laughs> and so these monks got on Ananda's case to see if he could you know, realize the highest enlightenment before the meeting. <laughs> It's the night before the big council meeting. Ananda is filled with energy and dedication and commitment. He's doing the walking meditation. Lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. Very attentive, very mindful, very energetic. One hour, two hours, three hours. It's getting closer to the time of the council meeting. Nothing's happening. Uh, he's, right, this is his big time. He keeps on walking, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And after a while, he sort of takes a look at what's going on. Because he, was, he had a lot of wisdom. You know, he'd been around the Buddha for a long time. So he looked at his practice, and there's too much, too much striving, too much energy, too much effort. And has to balance the mind, has to relax the mind a little bit. So he thought that he would just lie down you know, for a little while to calm everything. 
arouse some more tranquility in the mind. Very mindfully, very meticulously, and he goes to his mat. Very meticulously, lying down, lying, lying, lying. And it's said that before his head hit the pillow, and while his feet were still in the air, he realized full enlightenment. And all the psychic powers came spontaneously with that realization. And he, as it said, enjoyed the bliss of that realization for a few hours and then appeared spontaneously. You know, at this council meeting with all the monks, he just appeared psychically you know, in his seat. And all the other monks knew that he had made it. <laughs> you may be wondering the point of this story. <laughs> which is that every moment is equally important. And even as you are getting into bed, before your head hits the pillow, you never know. (laughs) The elaboration of mindfulness, which is the cornerstone of the practice, it's, it's just at the very center of the meditation practice, was elaborated by the Buddha in one very famous discourse called the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana means foundations of mindfulness or foundations of awareness. And in this sutta or discourse, Buddha explained the development of mindfulness in four areas. And these are the four areas of awareness that we practice. The first is mindfulness of the body. When we're aware of the breath, when we're aware of our posture, when we're aware of sensations, when we're aware of movement, when we're aware of reaching or touching, all of that is the development of this first foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body. It's a tremendously fruitful or powerful domain of awareness because the body is very tangible. Our body movements, the breath, the different sensations that we feel, they're very accessible. And so it's an easy place to begin to develop a very strong power of mindfulness. So every movement that we make even the small movements and the small shifts of posture. Every single movement, every single breath, every single sensation can be used to develop this factor of enlightenment, this limb of enlightenment, through mindfulness of the body. And there's mindfulness of feeling. We've talked about this previously. Feeling in this sense not meaning emotion, but in the Buddhist sense, meaning the quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. Mindfulness of these feelings becomes a very important aspect of our developing wisdom because it's feelings which condition greed and aversion. It's because of pleasantness that the mind clings. 
and because of unpleasantness that the mind condemns or dislikes and because of neutral feeling that the mind forgets. So when we're caught, you know, when we feel that the mind is caught in attachment or grasping, that would be a very skillful time to see and to be become aware of the feeling associated in that object, whether it's a sight or an image or a sound or a taste or a sensation. Because the reason that we're attached is because we're not mindful of the pleasantness arising with that experience. If we can become mindful or aware of it, notice the pleasantness, notice the impermanence, the changing nature of that feeling, we note pleasant, 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 rises and passes away. We see how it's possible then to experience pleasantness without grasping. It's not to push the pleasantness away, it's not to avoid it, rather to be aware of the pleasant feeling so that we don't unknowingly or unmindfully condition grasping or attachment. If we can be aware of it as it arises, then so much the better, then the mind doesn't get caught in that grasping. Often we won't be aware of it as it arises, we'll find ourselves attached, we'll find ourselves filled with greed. At the point that we become aware, that would be a useful point to become mindful of the feeling, to become mindful of the pleasantness that's arising with what's happening. Exactly the same thing with unpleasantness. When we feel that the mind is filled with aversion, or dislike, or irritation, or annoyance, or hatred, or fear. To become mindful of the unpleasantness of that object, whether it's a thought, or an image, or a sensation, or a sound. Because as we become mindful of the unpleasantness, we open to it, we become aware of it, we see the impermanence of it, and the mind is in balance in relationship to it. Unpleasant feeling arises. Note it, unpleasant, unpleasant, arises, passes away. There's no problem. There's no imbalance. There's no aversion. Mindfulness of feeling it's a very, plays a very critical role in the deconditioning process of our minds. So the Buddha singled out feeling as a special category to pay careful attention to. There's mindfulness of the body, of feeling. Mindfulness of the mind and mental states. Consciousness and different mental states that arise with it. And so we become mindful of the mind filled with desire, or the angry mind, or the sad mind, or the happy mind, or the interested mind. All of the different qualities of mind that arise, we become mindful of them, so as not to identify with them. You can see how it's getting progressively more subtle. The body is very tangible. The feelings are somewhat less tangible than that. 
These mind states are often less tangible than the feeling. They may not be strongly pleasant or unpleasant. Maybe the feeling state is not so predominant. And yet if we're not aware of the different mind states that arise, and we identify with them unknowingly, they become the unconscious filter on our experience. So it's as if we're viewing things through the filter of that particular mind state, through the filter of desire, the filter of anger, the filter of happiness, of sadness, of joy. And we no longer see that those mind states themselves are simply part of this passing show of experience. Not I, not self. So that's the third foundation of mindfulness. There's the body, there's feelings, there's the mind and mind states. And the last foundation of mindfulness is called mindfulness of the Dharma. It's hard to translate that. Mm -hmm. Dharma in this sense means means a few things. It means mindfulness of certain of the laws which are governing experience and also mindful of how certain factors of mind are functioning. For example, when we become aware of desire functioning as a hindrance or aware of anger functioning as a hindrance, that's mindfulness of the Dharma when we become aware of the different factors of enlightenment, which I'll be talking about tonight, when we see how they function as a factor of enlightenment, that's mindfulness of the Dharma. When we're mindful of the Eightfold Path, or the Five Aggregates, all of that is mindfulness of the Dharma. We begin to see the relationship of how these different elements are working. Mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths, when we're aware of suffering and the cause of suffering, which is attachment, and the end of suffering, which is letting go, and the path to the end of suffering, all of that is mindfulness of the Dharma. So in this one discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha laid out these four foundations of awareness, and it's a very comprehensive look at the different elements of our experience. Mindfulness and the cultivation of it brings about brings about a, a certain maturity of being. Now we have an appreciation of people of ourselves at different times, of being mature or immature. And maturity, in this sense, means balance of mind, a mind that is not continuously, continuously reactive, a mind that's not continuously bouncing off things, but a mind that has developed enough openness, enough attention in the moment, enough awareness to be accepting of what is actually present, to be grounded in the present. 
And that maturity of being creates a certain balance in our lives. And it comes about as we practice and cultivate and strengthen this first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. The second factor of enlightenment is called investigation of the Dharma, or investigation of the law of the truth. And it adds another aspect to the attention of mindfulness. This investigation of the Dharma adds the quality It adds the quality of inquiry, not particularly discursiveness. It's not inquiry in the sense of thinking about things, but it's that quality of mind which is experiencing different objects with a sense that we're asking the question, what is this? Who am I? What is happening? It's not that we're actually asking those questions in the mind, but that's the force, that's the energy, that's the quality. So it's not simply kind of a very passive observation, though that passive receptive side is part of it, but we add to it a very active looking or inquiry or investigation And it's this factor of enlightenment which is the wisdom factor. Because it's through this inquiry or investigation that we begin to understand and see how things are happening. You may have noticed that very often our minds are somewhat out of focus. And that that sometimes we're not, it's almost as if we see a double image, you know, of our experience. That we're not totally in focus with either the breath or sensations or thoughts. And this out-of-focus-ness was described in one poem by Wordsworth, which I like very much. In a few lines he said, Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Have you had the feeling in practice that sometimes we're either late or soon? We're just after it's disappeared or we're anticipating. Not totally there. Late and soon, getting and spending, busy reacting, not just being there. We lay waste our power because we're giving away our energy. We're leaking our energy with that not being in focus, not being totally present in a careful and inquiring way. So this factor of investigation or wisdom really focuses the attention and looks very actively at what it is that's happening. We begin to understand very clearly the difference between our concepts about things 
and the actual experience itself. Why is it that when the radiators clank, you know, often we can sit back and open up to this symphony of modern music, and when the person next to us is rustling around, it enrages us. It's not the sound. It's not that one sound is so much inherently more pleasant than the other sound. It's because our concept of it is very different. And we build whole stories about the second sound. And a little bit less of a story about the radiators. To drop down, to settle into the actual experience of what's happening without the story, without the concept. And you see, as we develop this ability to do that, if we can stop making stories up about the radiators and stop making stories up about the person next to us, we'll begin to stop making up stories about ourselves. And we'll begin to loosen this strong sense of self-image, of I. And that happens as we go from the level of concept or image to the actual experience of the moment. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. Seeing thought as a thought rather than getting lost in the content. It's through the power of investigation, this investigation of the Dharma, that we can begin to see the cause and effect relationship between the mind and body. Have you been investigating and paying attention to how this mind-body machine is, is working? How does it move? Why does it do the things it does? Why do you stand up? Why go in for lunch? There's a mechanism. There's, there's a way that it's happening. Maybe there's a certain feeling of emptiness in the stomach, a physical sensation. Creates a feeling, an unpleasantness. Conditions a desire in the mind to fill it. The desire creates an intention to move. The intention creates a movement, which is physical. And so we just go through the day, the mind conditioning the body, the body conditioning the mind. It's all a sequence. It's a cause and effect sequence. And again, when we see that, when you pay attention in that way, we begin to lessen our identification with the fiction that there is someone inside who's directing the whole show. Intention arises, body moves. Who's behind it? No one. <laughs> All of this, this kind of understanding comes through the development of this factor of enlightenment, investigation. So we add to the mindfulness kind of active inquiry. It's not thinking. It's not by thinking it out, but it's by paying attention in a vigilant way. We begin to see the impermanence of things. 
It's through this, this investigation factor, this wisdom factor, that the impermanence begins to reveal itself. You've probably, after you know, all these weeks of practice, have significantly deepened the direct, intuitive experience of how things are changing. Not just the idea that things change, because everybody knows that. But the actual wisdom of paying attention as things are changing, in the very moment that they're changing, to see that that's what's happening, to feel that that's what's happening, because that's what, that's what deconditions our grasping and our attachment. And we see the sensations arising and passing, and thoughts arising and passing, and feelings arising and passing. How many different moods do we go through in the course of a day or a week or a month? And how many more will we have to go through before the mind finally really gets that they're passing? That we don't have to get so caught up. We don't have to get so identified with them. Because they're just part of this passing show. And so we watch and we watch and we watch and we watch. And ten billion times we see it. And it's through this fact of investigation that finally a certain level of wisdom dawns. Oh yes, it's passing. We get better at it. You've, you've probably seen that you've gotten a little better at it. Investigation. It's the investigation into the Dharma that begins to open to different levels, different intensities of dukkha, of suffering. And this is a tremendously challenging part of the practice because the mind does not like to feel that. It doesn't like to realize it. The mind has been so conditioned to hold on to what's pleasant and to avoid what's unpleasant. That's been what has conditioned us for so many years and undoubtedly lifetimes, to begin to open to the different kinds, the different aspects of suffering. It takes a strong power of inquiry, a willingness to look at that. It's said that enlightenment happens in stages you know, progressively, because our minds are not strong enough all at once to encompass the, the magnitude of the dukkha that's present. So we have to do it in stages, so our minds can get strong enough and stable enough and powerful enough to actually see it and feel it. But again, it's that understanding, it's that wisdom, which really finally allows for the mind to let go. When we see that what we're holding on to is suffering, that what we're holding on to is this hot burning coal, when we see that fully, there's no question of release. Out of the wisdom of seeing it, the letting go happens automatically. And so we have to investigate, we have to be willing to investigate that. And it happens as, as we sit and practice. 
more and more aspects of dukkha begin to reveal themselves. And it's through the investigation, this investigation of the Dharma, that we begin to see and understand the selflessness of this process. That things do not belong to anybody. Sensations don't belong to somebody. Or hearing, or seeing, or thoughts, or emotions. It's not that there's someone behind this experience to whom it's happening. What we are is this flow of changing experience. That's a very profound difference. One is the idea that experience is happening to somebody, and the other is the realization that what we are is the process of change. What we are is a sequence of moments of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Through this investigative factor of mind, that becomes more and more clear, more and more obvious. One phrase which illustrates that point with regard to thought, the phrase that the thought is the thinker. No one having the thought, the thought is thinking itself. The feelings feel themselves. And this understanding of selflessness as we open to it, as we investigate it, is tremendously freeing for the mind. I mean, just imagine if all of this really did belong to you. Big trouble. There's one uh, Sri Lankan monk, he expressed it very well. He said, no self, no problem. Big self, big problem. Okay, there's mindfulness, there's investigation of the Dharma. The third factor of enlightenment is effort or energy. And the word in Pali is virya. And the quality of virya, effort is not quite a full translation of the flavor of that word. Because the flavor of that word means courageous effort or heroic effort. That effort, which is 100%. Because partial effort or mediocre effort is not sufficient. It's not powerful enough to actually penetrate through all the levels in the conditioning of mind. And so we have to practice this factor of enlightenment. We may start off our practice with half-hearted effort or mediocre effort, but it's important to realize that we have to develop that quality. We have to become courageous. We have to become heroic in our application 
of effort. Because that's what's required. What we're undertaking here is not something trivial. It's not, it's not some insignificant undertaking. What we're undertaking is the deepest purification and realization of mind. And it's to understand that that doesn't come easily, that that comes through the generation of a tremendous amount of energy. It can be developed, it can be practiced. The more we practice it, the stronger it gets. There are three kinds of effort that are needed. The first effort is the effort to direct the attention to the primary object. That takes an effort because the mind is wandering. So we have to arouse that effort to direct the mind to the rise, fall, the in, out, lift, move, place. That's the first effort that we have to make. And so we do it. We, we arouse that energy and to some extent the mind develops the ability to stay with the primary object for some period of time. What happens? You know, we practice and we practice and finally, you know, we can keep our minds somewhat on the primary object. But then what happens is that all sorts of difficulties start to arise. We start feeling pain in the body. The pain gets intense. We start feeling sleepy. We start feeling drowsy. We start feeling restless. All of these difficulties arise. And so the effort simply at directing the mind to the primary object at this point is not sufficient. We need another kind of effort to look at, to penetrate, and to overcome these difficulties. To be with pain takes effort. The mind doesn't like to do that. The mind likes to avoid it. And so somewhere we have to generate enough energy so that we can instead of shrinking from it, in a gentle way, and in a soft way, to go into it, to feel what's happening. Same thing with sleepiness or restlessness. When these hindrances come, it takes another kind, it takes another boost of energy to work with these hindrances. It's absolutely essential to do that, because otherwise we practice and we get you know, a little facile at being with the breath or the rising and falling. But then as soon as a difficulty comes, if we don't understand how to boost our energy at that time, we retreat. And the mind, the mind pulls back from working with it. So we keep coming up to this barrier and don't get through it, don't get past it. So it's to understand what it is that's happening at this time. We've developed some concentration, some awareness of the breath. Difficulties arise. That's the time to see clearly what's happening and to understand that a boost of energy, a boost of effort is needed at that time. So we do it. We practice that. We cultivate it. And most of you at different times have gone through some or all of those kinds of difficulties to see that we act, can actually sit with pain 
or go through sleepiness or go through restlessness. And so for some time we may come out the other side and everything is, everything is nice and smooth again. We're cruising along. That's a time for the third kind of effort or energy. Because if we cruise along and just stay satisfied with that cruising, that ease, we're no longer penetrating. We're no longer deepening. We're just kind of on a nice little holiday. And it's nice, it feels good, and it's the result of, our, of the work that we've done, but we really haven't yet reached the goal. We haven't done what needs to be done. And so at that time, again, what's required is a recognition of what is needed, which is this third kind of effort, the third kind of energy. It's called progressive energy, progressive effort, which is that effort which doesn't simply cruise along. It's not satisfied. It's not complacent. It's not that sense, well, I've worked hard and now I'm going to just enjoy things. But rather it's that sense of continually increasing effort to keep adding more and more energy into the practice, into the system. And it's not by getting tight and it's not by forcing really can be done in a very soft, a very gentle, but quite a, quite a powerful way. Not to settle back, to keep increasing. It's like after the new moon, you know, every day the moon, we see more and more of it. The waxing of the moon until it's full. That's the kind of... Mm, image for progressive energy. Every day, every day, let the energy wax a little more. How do we arouse this energy? Because we can hear about it and think, yes, that's a nice idea. But how do we actually gain access to it? There are times in the practice, if you find that the motivation is flagging a bit, you know, or the effort and energy is, is weakening, there are times when certain reflections can be very helpful. For me, one of the most inspiring reflections has to do with putting our practice into a much larger context. So that instead of kind of seeing it only, you know, as the next sitting or the next walking, understanding it in terms, starting with, you know, this lifetime. What is it that we want to do in our lives? What do we want to accomplish? That this opportunity for purifying the mind, for the deepest kind of realization, is so precious. It's so rare to have that opportunity. And to see how quickly, how quickly it goes. I remember 
when the retreat opened, commenting about how quickly the three months would go by. And probably at that time, it was looming like eternity. Three months of this. But I think many of you have the sense now, it's just just beginning. We should just be starting another three-month course now, just finally learning how to sit. Our lives are like that. You know, just so quick. We cannot afford to be complacent because before we know it, you know, we're at the end of our lives. What have we done with them? And seeing it not only in the context of one lifetime, but perhaps many lifetimes, this whole samsaric wheel can arouse a tremendous sense of appreciation for the profundity of what we're doing. Even though we have to do the work, and sometimes the work gets very mundane. As Trungpa Rinpoche called it, manual labor. That's how he described meditation. (laughs) And it feels like that. It feels just like, you know, digging in the earth. But it's manual labor in a very profound sense. Reflecting on death, reflecting on the precious human birth, reflecting on the, the speed, the rapidity you know, of our lives. And whatever else, in whatever way for each of you, you know, that comes to mind to really arouse this quality of courageous, heroic effort. to reflect in order to, in order to strengthen that factor. Because as it's practiced, it gets stronger. Just like mindfulness, just like investigation. It's not that we necessarily start with it, but we practice it and we cultivate it. There's mindfulness, there's investigation of the Dharma, there's energy, courageous effort, The fourth factor of enlightenment is rapture. And rapture is the quality of interest, it's the quality of joy, it's the quality of vitality in the mind. And this quality of rapture comes about through a very close and careful attention. Now, as we've mentioned, boredom arises when there's a lack of attention when our attention is half-hearted. So the mind gets bored, it's disinterested. It's not because the experience is boring, it's because our mind is boring. (laughs) Boring in the sense of not, not paying very careful attention to what's happening. And just as boredom comes from lack of attention, rapture comes from very close and intense attention. So as we practice that, as we bring the mind in very close to the object, to the rise and falling, to the in-out, to sensations, to thoughts, we bring it very close, a tremendous sense of interest arises. There is nothing more interesting than this phenomenon, because it is what we are. And so to examine the mind, to examine the body in a very detailed and careful way, it 
becomes increasingly fascinating. What's so interesting is that sometimes people feel that the practice is too too narrowing, the mind's getting too tight and too closed by all this narrow focusing. But what happens is that through the narrow focusing, we then open up to this amazingly wide world. It's like if we look at something and we focus in very powerfully, like through an electron microscope, we go in and in, and then it opens up to this world of subatomic particles and and the level of energy, at that level of perception. Exactly the same thing happens in our practice. We go in, 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 and then it opens up in a very universal way. We begin to drop out of our sense of a particular person or individual, our own particular story, and we start touching the fundamental energies of the mind and body. And as we do that, through close perception, close attention, this factor of rapture gets stronger and stronger. A key component of rapture and joy is the aspect of self-acceptance. If we're not accepting... Now, if we're caught up in a lot of self-judgment or unworthiness or feeling not good about ourselves, it's very hard to generate joy, hard to generate interest. And self-acceptance comes when we understand, even starting on a conceptual level and then increasingly experientially, when we understand that Buddha nature or enlightenment nature or wisdom is inherent in the mind, in all of our minds. It's not that some minds you know, are incapable of developing wisdom and understanding because it's in the nature of the mind that potential is there. And so where is the cause for non-acceptance? It's like we should have this tremendous respect, tremendous appreciation for the nature of mind because that's really what the Dharma means. Dharma is the nature of things, the way of things. When we get too caught or too identified with the particular defilements, then we lose the bigger picture and see that these defilements or hindrances or obstacles you know, or, or unpleasantnesses of the mind, they're just part of the unfolding of the Dharma. It's like in Suzuki Roshi in his book where he says, we pull the weeds to nourish the plant. Pull the weeds and then put it around the base of the plant and it nourishes it. All of these factors of mind, which may 
look to be hindrances or obstacles, we can transform into nourishment if we're looking carefully, if we're paying close attention, because we see the nature of them. We see the nature of the Dharma working through them. And so to cultivate in ourselves this very strong respect and appreciation and love and compassion Isn't it amazing that our minds have the capacity to become Buddha? Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, that, that that capacity is there. It's true, it needs a little development. <laughs> but it's actually there in each of us. And so when we see that and we understand that, a tremendous sense of joy you know, and rapture begins to arise, and it gives us energy then to proceed on the path, to do the work. There's mindfulness, there's investigation, there's courageous effort, there's rapture, there's calm, the fifth factor of enlightenment. Calm means coolness of mind, the mind that's free from compulsive desire free from reactivity. It's like on a very hot day coming into the cool shade, on a very cold day coming into a warm room. This is when everything gets peaceful and tranquil. And to get a sense of what calm means, to get a, a direct experiential hit of calm, Pay careful attention to the transition time in the mind between the time that the mind is filled with a desire for anything, any, any kind of desire in the mind, the wanting mind. Just be watching, wanting, wanting, wanting. And then notice very carefully the moment when the wanting falls away and contrast the different qualities of the mind of when the wanting is there and when it's not there. And it's so interesting to see that even when the wanting is associated with some pleasure, even when there's some pleasurable fantasy going on and there's wanting in the mind, if you pay careful attention in that way, you will see that when the mind stops wanting, there is this sense of relief. It's like the mind becomes calm in that moment. It's not stirred up by the fire of, of lust, of greed. As our practice goes on, more and more we get a taste of tranquility. The mind not driven by greed, not driven by hatred. The sixth factor of enlightenment is concentration. And that steadiness of mind, the mind that's not wavering, it's not flickering. We've, we've mentioned before how there are two kinds. One is concentration on a fixed object. One is concentration on changing objects. It's this concentration which gives power to the mind. That's, that's where the power is generated, the power to penetrate deeply. 
concentration will come out of the effort to be mindful. So it develops as a natural part of this whole practice and path. The last factor of enlightenment is equanimity. And equanimity means impartiality, means balance. A mirror is equanimous. A mirror doesn't react to what comes in front of it. Happy, sad, ugly, beautiful, whatever. The mirror just reflects. Can our mind become so balanced and so spacious, so impartial, that it simply reflects, it simply is aware of whatever it is that's arising. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, doesn't matter. There's one very direct statement of this in the teachings of the third Zen patriarch, where he says that the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and aversion are both absent, everything is clear and undisguised. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Have you probably, at at certain times anyway, your minds have dropped into that place where there's a very strong equanimity, where whatever it is that's coming is just arising and passing, and a kind of happiness, kind of joy that is in that state of balance, where the mind's not reacting, it's not reaching out, it's not pushing away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.